Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from our website, BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. BIV hosts a number of events throughout the year, and we have two events coming up that we want to draw your attention to. Next week on September 26th, we have our Cannabis Investors Forum. If you're interested in understanding cannabis business and investment opportunities, this is the event. We have a great lineup of panelists who can answer questions such as what will happen to me at the U.S. border if I'm an investor in this space. Lots of information. It will be a great discussion. And for more details on that event, head on over to BIV.com slash events. We also have our 2018 Top 100 Fastest Growing Companies reception coming up on October 4th. This is where we'll celebrate BC's fastest growing companies at TELUS Garden. Some of these companies have seen more than 1,000 or 2,000% growth. This is a chance to meet some of the people pushing these businesses to new heights. Visit BIV.com slash fastest for information. On today's show, we're going to be speaking to BIV's weekly tech panel about bribes at Amazon and the future of virtual reality. But we start our show today with highlights from our Vancouver mayoral candidates debate. Glacier Media hosted this Monday, September 17th over the course of two hours at SFU Harbor Center. What you're going to hear is our event moderator, Kirk LaPointe, co-host on this podcast, introducing each of the candidates. Each candidate had about two minutes to provide some closing statements. You're going to hear eight candidates provide those remarks in a couple seconds here. If you want to listen to the full debate, we live streamed it and the video is up online at BIV.com where you can hear it in full. But here are some of the highlights. So we're actually uh, running ahead of schedule, which is uh, rare for any of us here. Uh, But we have now closing statements. We were going to permit only one-minute statements, but I think we have time for two-minute statements uh, in the order that the candidates were drawn. Mr. Bremner, you will start. Well, thank you again, Kirk, for your service as well in stepping up and you know, hosting this and also your past uh, uh, work in the community. And thank you all for coming out and, and uh, engaging in this thoughtful debate and asking tough questions. And, you know, you, we were all, I think, pretty well behaved here tonight. I think we did a pretty good job. And I hope, I hope that we did our system proud. Because that's really fundamentally what got me involved in this. At the end of the day, we're all angry about a lot of the same things. We're frustrated and we're seeing something slip away from us. And politicians and the political process has probably given us more than enough reason to not want to get involved. Not enough people vote. Not enough people put their name on a ballot. Not enough people get out and try to make a difference in their community. But what I'm really proud of is that we've been able to create this new organization. And we've been able to boldly go out there and put five uh, small business owners with me on a council slate to bring forward a real plan for the 21st century. Not hate and blame, not tax and ban, but a real hope for our future together and a plan to get there. So I hope that you'll at least do me that. Read our plan. Take a time, really, really look at it. Really consider what's been said. Really understand who and what and where people have come from in this race. It's so critical. 
because we are more than arguing about a pipeline or a bike lane or you know who's an NDP, who's a BC Liberal, who's a, all, all this stuff is just noise. We have got 9,000 less children enrolled seconds. in our schools. We've had a 30% increase in homelessness in the last three years. Seniors are told that they have to leave our community because we act as if a four-story building anywhere near us is somehow the end of the world. Enough is enough. It's time to take all the good ideas. And you know what? Some of my colleagues up here, they do have some good ideas. But I'll tell you this. Last year, I knew, I knew that I needed to step and come out to City Council and do the job. Thank you very much, oh, Mr. Brenner. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Mr. Stewart, you are next. Well, I'd like to thank everybody for coming out tonight and my uh, opponents who have done a great job here, so thank you. Um, I moved out to uh, Vancouver from Nova Scotia in the late 80s uh, with 100 bucks, and this city has given me absolute everything, uh, absolutely everything. I mean, uh, my education here at Simon Fraser University, and then on to the London School of Economics to get a PhD, and then uh, having the great privilege of, of serving in Parliament for seven years, dealing with some very, very tough issues, and, and learning how politics is done. Uh, I'm really worried about this city, and that's why I've stepped down, that's why I'm no longer an MP, that's why I quit that job in order to come here, because this city's given me everything, I love it, and I think it's in real trouble. Uh, all my work academically has been on cities and on housing. I've, made, I've given housing advice all around the world, uh, the United Nations, national governments. Uh, so I thought, well, if I can put all my expertise into other places, why can't I do it here? And the best role I can do this in is, is from the, uh, the mayor's chair. Uh, so November 5th, we're going to have a very fractured council. It's, it's a change election. You know, a long-term mayor steps down. It's a change election. So this is what change looks like. It's kind of messy and it's kind of exciting. But on November 5th, all that should settle down and we need to get right to work. Uh, and I have the experience to do that. But I also have the experience in bringing people together. Uh, last year, I wrote a book with Michael Chong, you might be surprised, who was a conservative MP that ran for the leadership race. I, uh, Elizabeth May was in that book. Preston Manning was in that book. Uh, I've passed bills in Parliament. Uh, some like the electronic petitions and also toughening uh, uh, driving impairment laws. So uh, I've done this work and I, and I know what to do when I get to City Hall. But I, but I need a progressive council and what I'm really hoping is that if you vote for me, you'll also consider candidates from one city. Uh, Jean Swanson, I went down to her court hearing the other day. I think she's a, a great beacon in, in this uh, city. As, uh, and I think there are other, some other great candidates in vision too. So I would, I would think that we need to have a progressive Council that's going to look after the city and get the housing built that we Thank need you, to Mr. build here. Thank you. Mr. Harding. Thank you. I want to thank all of you for coming out tonight as well. Thank you so much. And I want to thank my, uh, my opponents as well. They're, they're good people on this stage with some great ideas. We need to return to common sense government. We must return to get some common sense into what's going on in the city. We've been failed. We've been failed miserably over the last 10 years. We have to do some good business here. We have to get our permits cut by 90%. We have to bring investment into the city. We can do that. We're going to bring back the NBA. We're going to make sure that they've got a statement, a stadium that they can play out of. Where? <laughs> On the waterfront. Let's, we've got a lot of space here. Don't say where, let's say how, right? Let's make it happen. This is the problem. Because it's business. It is a billion dollar business and we need business. 
That's what we need. We need a great transport system. We need to get people who are 18 and under traveling for free so that we can, and seniors so that we can get thousands of cars off the road. We have to have safety in our, in our cities, in, in our city. People are feeling unsafe. They're afraid of le leaving their homes. It's not, just, it's not just crime, but it's the fear of crime. And we have to work on reducing both. And we have to work on our housing issues. You have to remember, we want people to vote. Your vote is your voice. Your vote is your voice. Your vote is your voice, and if you don't use your vote, you lose your voice, and you must have a voice at City Hall. I want to be your mayor. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Sim. By the way, these candidates are great. Uh, we joked about it after. Actually, it's not a joke. We're actually going to grab beers at the end of our, the campaign together. Uh, Vancouver's at a crossroads. We all know that. And, um, you know, Mr. Kennedy, you mentioned that, you know what, you can work with people. Um, or, sorry, Mr. Stewart, Kennedy. Um, <laughs> You say you can work with people because you're a br bridge builder, but then you went and you said, please vote for these different groups. That's not inclusive, right? And so I've actually met all the, most of the candidates from all the different parties, and I've reached out because I know as soon as I'm mayor, it's not going to be a mayor and 10 people on council. It's going to be 11 people that are equals. And so that's what I would suggest. That's the attitude we have to have. In addition to that, we've actually put together an amazing slate of candidates. And so when you actually look at the MPA's candidate, it is, they're, they're, they're diverse. We actually have five women running for council versus three men. We have ethnic diversity, sexual orientation diversity, socioeconomic diversity. We have a bus driver running for parks. There is no left or right in our party. There, it, there's representation from every corner of the city. That's the team that we put together, people that care about the city. And they're going to put partisan behaviors at the door, and they're going to work for the city. Thank you. Ms. Sylvester. Thanks so much. I'm looking at this election and I'm saying we're at this very important historical moment. And it's a historical moment that I would say is going to be characterized in two ways. Will we create a city where people feel like they can live, that their kids can live here, that you can age here? Will we create that city? That's how we're going to be judged. Because at the heart of this is, who is this city for? Is it going to be for us? Or is it going to be for others that don't live and work here anymore? And so for me, I entered into this race because I feel like this is the one time in our history where we need an independent voice that it's experienced deeply experienced in good governance and financial accountability, but more important, I have 30 years working in conflict zones across so many differences. Getting people together, getting them to work together, and in the service of the city of Vancouver and the people of Vancouver, not for their political party. So I am the only independent candidate 
that has that level of experience and does not have that political alignment. Because if we do have that political alignment, exactly what you heard Mr. Stewart say, you're going to start picking. 30 seconds. And then you can't work. The other thing that I think is critical is we're divided and we're fragmented. And right now, 41% of the people of this region don't think democracy is the right way forward. It's part of my research, it's what I do, and it's the other reason I'm here. We have to turn the corner, or we can start looking at what's happened in Ontario, what's happened in the United States, happening here. We can turn this around. There is so much good about this city. Thank you very much. And so many great solutions. Thank you. Mr. Chen. First of all, I'd like to thank all of you for coming out here because your time is actually the most precious commodity in the world. No matter how much money you have, you cannot buy more of. So thank you for coming out. 25 years of working in the community, I've learned a lot of things. I never did that because I wanted rewards, recognition. One of the things I learned to survive that is you have to listen. You have to know who's the boss. The funny thing in all of this, we know this is going to be fractured. Mr. Stewart is very correct. But the funny thing I keep hearing, thank you, acknowledge my opponents. They're not my opponents. They're my colleagues. Because if you're going to create unity, they're not opponents. They are part of your family. They are brothers and sisters. They just have a different opinion. And that's where you work together. I'm a homegrown kid. I'm a very simple person. Again, I don't really like to talk about myself, but you're here because you want to know who is going to be that leader you're going to trust. So, okay, here's a bit of my background. I grew up on the poor side of Point Grey. I know you laugh, but on the other side of the army camp, in the old days, we were all poor. We collected bottles, we used the deposit, go get a slush cat, play video games. I know that in my career, I'm a CFP, Certified Financial Planner, so I get the books. I also have a degree from McGill in human physiology, as well as a degree from UBC in biopsychology. I understand the social psychology aspect. I understand the business. I've been an entrepreneur mentor for six years. I've kept young entrepreneurs out of trouble, kept them in business. But here's something interesting about business and governance. There is a part that is business and governance, but there's another part. All of you are not the customer. You're actually the boss. And if you don't understand that, you don't deserve to lead. The leader needs to listen to you, every single one in Thank this. Thank you, Mr. Chen. Thank you. Ms. Young. Again, I'd like to, um, is this working? I hope so. Is this working? I think it is. No? There. Oh, I think it's brand new. Is that better? And your two minutes will start now. I'm being generous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, fellow candidates, and I agree that we have ideas, and some of these ideas that are great ideas we're going to take. And thank you for being here today. We're here, and I'm running for mayor because Vancouver has lost its soul. Everywhere we go, there is people that are struggling to live in the city, Livability is an issue, as you know. Affordability is an issue. Businesses are closing in our neighborhoods. Our youth are fleeing because they can't afford to live here. 
My children may not be able to come back and live here. This is why I am running for mayor. We can do better. We can clean up our city. We can have mutual respect on our roads. We can decrease the taxes that are making it so unaffordable to live in the city. When City Hall is putting taxes on building in the city, where 56% of the building are taxes that go to the city, 107 taxes, there is something very wrong with City Hall. In this city, I've lived here for over 50 years, and so many of us have lived through the dictatorship that has happened in the last 10 years. Where 30 seconds. We wake up the next day, and things have just happened. Coalition Vancouver was formed to be for the people, to be for the people that have been ignored, the businesses that have been ignored, that have closed up, we are for the people and not for big businesses, not for special interest groups, not for the unions that have been selling out our city beneath us. We are the only ones that are for the people and can thank you, Ms. Young. provide thank you. Mr. Boudet. I'm a comedian, I'm also an artist, oddly enough. I didn't get asked that question. So I'll answer that now. I find it censorship, arts funding. When you can't fund every artist who comes and needs it, it's censorship. Because it's a government picking and choosing what speech deserves it. And that's not right. And it's also a very safe place to cut, slash, and burn when you need to pay for other things that are more necessary, like fixing a road or something. I, I look forward to uh, seeing a much freer city. I like to, I like to I, I'm a free speech advocate. I think we need someone who is a free speech advocate to moderate council because, I mean, if anyone's gonna give everyone a, a shot at saying something, it's going to be a libertarian. A libertarian's not gonna say, no, you have no right to say that. Because he's full of shit if, if he does that. Pardon my French. We just, we just got kicked off Facebook. Thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs> I think I got kicked off Twitter when I said I was a libertarian. Uh, anyway, um, I'm, uh, I look forward to seeing less taxes. I look forward to seeing more affordability in government. I'd like to, I'd like to see government less, lessened. And if you want green policy, want less government. Because if the government's using less resources, that means it's using less resources. And it's wasting less resources. And it's greener. Thank you, Mr. Boudet. With me in studio today is our weekly tech panel. We have Ali Pordad, CEO at Progressa, and Linda Fawkes, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society, joining us on the line. Thank you both for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
We have several topics to get to, but let's start with Amazon. The company, according to the Wall Street Journal, is investigating claims that some employees have taken bribes in exchange for information. This could be, say, for internal sales data to deleting bad reviews. And apparently, it can actually cost you up to $2,000 to pay a broker to get something done. That seems like it might be a lot of money, but Ali, I guess this could be gold for some sellers if you get access to data that you otherwise would not know anything about. Yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't realize Amazon had such a contingent of employees in China, but this is uh, seems to be where the the story is stemming from. And uh, it doesn't surprise me if Amazon's not careful about how it uh, proceeds into various countries and uh, and handles these sort of employee conduct issues. It, uh, it definitely could uh, jeopardize a lot of its merchant relationships. And one of the issues does seem to be the fact that these employees, largely based in China, they're getting low wages. And if you have the option to get a slice of $2,000, maybe that's a good deal. Linda, is this something you think Amazon can or would ingress through increasing wages? I'm somehow doubting that. Um, <laughs> I mean, the way Bezos runs his trillion-dollar company, but I um, I do think though that the employees who are providing or deleting these bad reviews or providing insider data are just sort of the tip of the iceberg on the issue that Amazon has with controlling the quality of their reviews with these Facebook Amazon review groups and professional fake reviewers that have hit the platform in the last number of years, these reviews are getting really spammy. It's a lot like Craigslist over there now. Mm. It's not the same as it was back in the day when they were just a bookseller and we all loved sharing each other's opinions on books. It's a very different review platform now. Yeah, it's very competitive and there's a lot at stake for a lot of these sellers. How can Amazon begin to address this, Ali? Oh, it's going to be tough. I think you you have to have some uh, built-in controls into your uh, in your technology to be able to to, to detect this sort of uh, um, behavior. Um, you know, I think probably artificial intelligence. There's probably a way to monitor uh, behavior and review mm-hmm. behavior, and especially if it's being manipulated. I, I'm I'm certain there's ways to do it. Um, and Amazon just needs to make those investments. Mm-hmm. Amazon, uh, they run so much of our lives now. They're ubiquitous and becoming ever more so. And, and I'm curious, Linda, maybe their reviews and the products, they become less reliable. But does it affect consumer behavior? Do we turn away from Amazon? Do we buy less products at the end of the day? How do you think this sort of plays out from a com- consumer perspective? I think when we uh, don't trust the reviews on these online sites, Amazon in this case, I think it does affect how we use the platform and our trust with with Amazon as a company. Are we believing what they say when they have when they represent products on their website? Are we believing these reviews? A big part of online platforms is being able to share our feedback on products. And when we now see that a great percentage of these are manufactured, it's a it's a confidence hit for the consumer. I will say, though, I uh, don't look at reviews uh, too much when I buy, and we urge our glue people to take a look kind of at the middle reviews, sort of ignore the really good ones and ignore the really bad ones. But, but there needs to be another system because it's, um, it's, it becomes very challenging to find a product in those markets when you have literally the world of products at your fingertips there. We need to have another system. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think at a minimum, you need the concept of verified buyers and sellers. Mm-hmm. Uh, some platforms have adopted that. I think Amazon probably has that concept. If they don't, I know um, platforms like Wayfair have adopted it. Um, 
and other online platforms where you basically you know you have a verified uh, a verified uh, person that's transacted with with the uh, with the company. That's a starting point, but uh, certainly uh, it's necessary. I mean, I I, I rely on I rely on uh, reviews when I purchase things all the time. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, but you know, we've got we've got the verified sellers, but they also have um, uh, this backdoor um, incentive uh, incentivization. So you can actually hire a verified seller on Amazon to review your product, and they buy the product, they review it as a verified purchaser, and then you refund the money through PayPal or something um, if they give you a good review. So when that system exists today, you can go on Facebook and find one of those groups and be invited to join. So, so I don't know that even the slick system of verified sellers is going to cut it. I think uh, Amazon looks to needs to look at an, a whole new way of, of ensuring that the incentivized people are not skewing the reviews on the platform. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of Twitter a little bit and they're dealing with fake news censorship censorship issues, they have that verified check mark or not accepting any more applications at this time. But I'm wondering if we need to move beyond that in these systems. There has been sort of a tier of verified accounts on Amazon, on Facebook to some extent for managing pages, on Twitter. Is there going to be like a 2.0 or 3.0 of this check mark? And what is that going to involve, do you think? I mean, in the in the online lending space, as an example, we have the concept of uh, verified de- devices. So somebody, mm-hmm. you know, just to prevent fraud, somebody could be using a, a specific device to go and apply at hundreds of different websites at once uh, for a lending solution. I, I'm, I don't see why that concept couldn't be applied mm-hmm. here, where you're starting to now look at device fingerprinting and... Um, you know, maybe it's a maybe it's a shop sitting in uh, in somewhere in China or in Thailand or something, and there's you know a, an army of people doing these reviews. I'm sure that could be detected using technology. There you go. There's a solution. Let's move on to our next topic, and that would be closer to home. The Cascadia Innovation Corridor it continues to garner interest and support locally and in the U.S. This is a Pacific Northwest innovation strategy. We just had Microsoft commit $10 million to this cause. And I'm curious, Linda, I'll start with you, but I'll ask it to both of you. What do you think the best possible outcomes are for Vancouver as we're part of this multi-stakeholder strategy? 20, 30 years from now, what do you think we could really get out of this if everything works smoothly? I love that we can see that border as a a permeable structure when companies mm. in Vancouver, startups, the thriving community of startups in Vancouver can as easily look at expanding their market down the coast instead of just across the country, that we can see Seattle and Portland as viable um, hubs for us instead of just instinctively heading over to Toronto. So I think this is a an incredible opportunity for Vancouver to be part of what's happening in Seattle and Portland and, and, and making Vancouver a real the Canadian center for that. A lot of companies want to be based in Canada. They perhaps don't want to be in, in America and, and Vancouver can be that place for them and still be connected to those two huge markets. In addition to ease of expansion, Ali, what other benefits do you think Vancouver stands to gain out of this? Well, I mean, even before, even before the show, we were talking about um, housing prices here in, uh, yeah. in Vancouver. And, uh, you know, a lot of that is just supply and demand. We, we have a, lo- a lot of uh, people up here looking for work and some find work, but it's hard to find a place to live. Uh, so just flexibility for employers is another benefit. Uh, as Linda mentioned, if you take these walls down and you have a little bit more ease of access uh, north and south, makes a big difference. Uh, and then potentially, you not, now you're going to start to see 
you know, startups making those decisions as well. So you might, although the, the larger companies like Microsoft and Amazon are, are uh, happily setting up shop in both cities or in all cities, uh, now you're going to start to see startups make those decisions. And that could be uh, also very impactful for startups because uh, they might have more access to talent. Uh, they might uh, have cheaper rent to start. A lot of things that make a big difference to a younger company. Mm-hmm. I, I liked what somebody said about having a super nexus pass for the venture capital guys <laughs> so they can zoom across the border really quickly. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. like that. You mentioned Toronto, Linda, and Toronto, Waterloo. They get a lot of investment from Google, Amazon, Facebook, you name it. There are a lot of reasons why that money would be going there. Education and their educational institutions is one of them. But do you think Vancouver, if we did things a little bit differently through this strategy, maybe, could we stand to maybe get some of that investment out west instead of out east? Or is it just two entirely different things? I sure hope so. I think money follows mass and Toronto gets it because they're the gravitational pull in our country. But I I don't see why Vancouver can't begin to even more emerge as an opportunity, uh, a market of opportunity, not just for businesses, but for talent, education, research, partnerships. Uh, I absolutely hope that Vancouver becomes that. I want to see our our smart people being trained at our fantastic universities here stay here and not need to leave Vancouver to pursue their careers in technology and biotech and all these great things Vancouver is becoming known for. Mm-hmm. We have Microsoft in Vancouver, but we don't have Microsoft. We don't have a major innovation anchor here in Vancouver like some of our partners to the south do. Ali, do you think this strategy will allow Vancouver to maybe be more attractive to these companies? Or could we lose them to, say, Seattle, Portland, other companies where uh, other cities were aligned with? Yeah, I mean, I think we definitely run a risk if the, if the cost of living is too high here relative to wages. I think there is a risk that we lose uh, talented people to other cities. I think, you know, as it relates to companies like Microsoft, Google, <clears throat> etc., Amazon, uh, they love, I think they all uh, resoundedly love Vancouver, but it's not looked at as Vancouver. It's looked at as Canada. They're making decisions on a Canadian basis. Uh, and if Vancouver, for some reason, becomes too expensive or not practical for employees, uh, then I don't think they'll think twice about uh, moving into other cities. Mm-hmm. One area Vancouver is known for among several is uh, virtual reality and augmented reality in the companies we have in that ecosystem here. And this weekend, we have the VRAR Global Summit coming to Vancouver. I wanted to talk about this because I tried VR gaming for the first time over the weekend and was really impressed, a little bit nauseated, but really impressed by the technology. (laughs) We've talked about this before, Linda, about where VR and AR are going. Clear enterprise solutions, but when do you think we'll see sort of a mass market consumer adoption of virtual reality? Or is that something that's just never going to happen? I don't know. I got to say I'm either old or vain and probably both, but those goggles are really kind of dorky and I'm not sure I want to put them on. I don't want to be tethered to a space. So the outside in VR, meaning the sensors have to watch me doing what I'm doing, not so interesting. The inside out where I can actually put on maybe perhaps in the future a slimmer pair of goggles and and work with my environment that way might be interesting. But while it's a an expensive uh, headset that is clunky and makes me bump into coffee tables. I'm not that keen on <laughs> VR. AR, totally different movie, of course, but VR is, is a long way from being part of my gaming experience. What about you, Ali? 
you know, I've said this before, and I think I'll say it again. It really will come down to the content for me. I think uh, the VR, it's obviously it's showing that it's come a long way as far as the technology and its robustness. It seems to be a lot more reliable, and uh, you know, it works with most phones now. If you want to go down the, the phone the phone route uh, to using a VR uh, or AR for that matter. Um, and so I think really what it does come down to is, are you going to be able to keep me interested? And mm. if the content, uh, you know, this Jurassic, I, I'm hearing a lot about this Jurassic World VR expedition. Uh, this is the sort of stuff that I think gets me excited and uh, I'm sure could get the mass market excited as well. We have Cineplex too, rolling out VR installations in 30 to 40 theaters. I'm sure some of those will be in greater Vancouver. Is that something you'd, you'd pay to go to if you weren't watching a movie? Would you go to a Cineplex alley? to experience VR for an hour or maybe before yeah. a movie. Yeah, I, I think I would. And and I think I would also, if they can solve the problem that Linda just mentioned about the headset and there's a way to do it maybe through like a blue screen like room that you would just stand in and be suddenly be immersed in VR, um, that would be interesting as well. Like I'm, sh- I'm sure there's going to be an evolution of this technology that's going to go beyond beyond the headset. Um, just it's just a question of what form that becomes. Mm-hmm. And Linda, you we've spoken before about how you work with older adults and their adoption of technology. Is there alignment at all between what VR and AR can do and maybe how older adults use technology? I think uh, AR, VR as well, will be fund- really fundamentally game-changing for older adults to in- expand their world. Literally, they can be in their own place and traveling the world interacting with people and things. Um, I, I really love the future of where this is going. We're not there yet, mm-hmm. um, but I love where it's going. But really bringing the world into their spaces, it's going to reduce social isolation. It's going to help them feel engaged in the world. I love it. Yeah, and it's it's an exciting future ahead. And I always love having both of you in to talk about the latest in tech. Ali, Linda, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That's Linda Focus, founder and CEO at Glue Technology Society, and Ali Portad, CEO at Progressa. And that's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and listen at biv.com, where, of course, you can find more business news. We'll be back tomorrow. 